Welcome to Evidence Based, a new Harbinger psychology podcast. I'm your host, Cassie Stossel. On today's episode, we're talking about emotional exhaustion. Our guest is Nancy Collier, author of The Emotionally Exhausted Woman. Nancy is a psychotherapist, author, interfaith minister, and public speaker. A longtime student of Eastern spirituality, she's a thought leader on mindfulness, well-being, and digital life. Featured on Good Morning America, in the New York Times, USA Today, and other media, Collier is also a regular blogger for Psychology Today and HuffPost. She's author of Can't Stop Thinking, The Power of Off, Inviting a Monkey to Tea, and Getting Out of Your Own Way. Hi, Nancy. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking about emotional exhaustion. I think it's really relatable and very relevant. And so I thought we could start off by talking about what exactly emotional exhaustion looks like for women specifically. Well, it's one of those conditions that shows up in so many different ways. We, we experience it as a kind of sense of depletion, a sense of what it sounds like emotional exhaustion, giving and giving and giving without even really an awareness that we are giving so much and maybe not receiving what we really need to feel at our best. So we might feel anxiety or depression or resentment uh, that we are offering everyone in our life what they want and need, but somehow not receiving it for ourselves or we might experience just a sense of hopelessness. Uh, what is my life really about? It runs the full gamut. But when when you use that title, what is emotional exhaustion? It's one of those questions that we know it when we hear those two words together. We know I'm emotionally exhausted. I'm emotionally exhausted from being so much to so many people. Yeah. And just to quote you for a second, I highlighted this part and I just wanted to read it really quick. It said, sometimes your emotional exhaustion feels unavoidable and acute, but it can also show up as a kind of wallpaper feeling, a background sense of dissatisfaction and incompleteness and emptiness. That was like so on point right there. It is so true. You know, so many women walk around and I've been in practice for nearly 30 years and see the majority of my clients are are women. Um, Not entirely, but there's a sense of where am I in this life? I may have built this great life and have all these yummy parts of it, but a sense of not being in touch with something deeply authentic, where we are living our, as Mary Oliver said, our one wild and precious life, you know, that we're disconnected from some sense of vitality and that is uniquely ours. Mm-hmm. And so it's it can present in this very sort of vague way of, Yes, my life is good, but is this my life? Is this really serving who I am? And that's a little bit trickier to sort of parse and to to get a handle on, but it often presents in that way of being disconnected from our true wants and needs. And in your book, you write about the likability cage. I'm wondering if you could talk about what that is. 
So the likability cage is as a result of our conditioning, and that happens first in the family. It happens in our larger society. It happens, you know, that women are are trained to essentially be likable at all costs, right? To be pleasing. We're safe when we're pleasing. And we should be selfless. And we should, we, we, we all know this story, we should have our needs met by taking care of other people's needs. We are pleasing when we are what you want us to be, right? But what happens over time is that um, we start to believe that our very sense of safety, our survival, depends upon staying likable. So early on in life, and it often happens around the tween years, we start trading in authenticity for likability. And we figure out that it's more important to have a relationship with other people than it is to have a relationship with ourselves. It's more important to be liked by other people than to be liked by ourselves. So, but what happens is that we, that, tween becomes a teen and a 20 and a 30 and a 40. And our operating system is still about staying in this cage of likability. And that comes at the cost of our greatness, of our truth, of our authenticity, of our living really a full life that is ours. And so we get caught in this and it's it's a it's a good cage, you know. It's filled with cash and prizes because people like us when we, we're likable. That's the point of it, right? And so we're included, we're we're safe, we're approved of. You know, it's it's a nice, happy, shiny cage. But what are the costs? And that's what I got really interested in over time is. Women coming to me to say, I want something bolder and and more real, even if it comes at the cost of being so damn likable. You know, so we get caught there because we really believe that if we step out of the cage, that's always been our sort of fumes of safety, that we will give up everything and end up alone. And, you know, old women in, you know, with cats in a shoe, right? <laughs> So we have that built-in core belief, and it starts so young that our happiness depends on you liking me. What's so interesting about that, too, and, and I resonated with all of that, but it's it's almost so unconscious that we learn this. Like, it wasn't something in my household that was like, you have to be likable or anything like that, but it just it just happens unconsciously. It's like osmosis. We just take it in. And of course, as the caretakers, you know, the gen, the women have generally been the caretakers because we are in some way neurologically tuned in to be empathic. So we're already built to be very uh, conscious of other people's needs. And then there are all these ways, you know, I was sitting in a diner the other day and there were there was a family and a little boy and a little girl and uh, they ordered a big cookie and the little girl broke it off and the diner is my place where I go to just observe mankind I just love it and she broke it in half and of course one of the halves was you know broken and like a third and the other one was you know intact and like and she gave her brother 
the big happy one and everybody clapped and you know we get these messages you know you disappear and then people like you and then now you're valued and so as that goes on over time and then also this giant myth cassie that is i'll tell you another very very brief story i was out to, to dinner with a friend of mine who has three children who never orders a meal for herself. And when I find, I've known her in years, I said, why, why do you not order a meal? She'll just pick off her kid's plate. And she said, because I get so much nourishment from just watching my children eat. And I thought, but you need to eat as well. So we are sort of in this, in the air is this message that I should be able to serve my needs by having your needs fed. And we pick it up everywhere, right? I too was raised in a family of very empowered women, but I came out believing that I'm safe if you approve of me. So did I receive that message directly? No, but um, all these subtle ways, you know, and then that's enhanced when we come into this culture where there's this idea of the perfect woman and the imperfect woman where, well, if I start taking care of my own needs and I'm not as interested in whether you like that or not, I care about how they land on you. But if it's not my primary purpose to make you happy, well, I have all sorts of judgments waiting for me, selfish and, you know, out for herself and arrogant and self-involved and all these dreadful things that we don't want to be labeled. And so we get back in the cage, right? So it's it's the both. It's the support of the woman who is just so accommodating. Whatever you need, right? I'm available. That's the woman that's invited to the party and chosen. And if we step out of the cage, oof, right? Look at her so ballsy and so male and so this and so that. It's like, ugh, I don't want to be that. I want to be part of the herd so I don't get left behind to die. It's very primal. It's very, very sort of survival-y. Yeah, this reminds me of like the whole like girl boss culture, like labeling something that is traditionally, quote unquote, a man's area and like being proud to be a girl boss. Yeah. I don't want to be a girl boss. I just want to be able to say what's true for me and be on equal footing, right? Why Why do we become girl boss? Which, what is the implication of girl boss? Bossy, right? You know that you just take off the why, but that's what we're saying. Bossy, and and listen, this is not a, you know, anti-male. This is the part of the patriarchy. Bossy for a man is, is sort of uh, what's a good thing in business for a man, right, who, who is confident and powerful for a woman is bossy. We know, you know, from a wonderful case study of a woman named Heidi Roizen, you know, that in a Harvard Business School study, when you replace the same case study with a man, uh, with a woman for a, a man, that the very same qualities are 
that are seen as, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good leader. He's a good, for a woman, or she's arrogant. She's out for herself. She's not someone you want to work for. Same exact case, same exact situation, but we replace the man with a woman, and then it becomes all these derogatory things. So to be likable and be successful and be just powerful, they don't go together. They're not good bedfellows yet in our culture. And I'll tell you one other thing, too, about that. You know, social media is a little tricky because social media is all about you be you, you be. But if you really drill down on that, be careful about what you can be. And then it becomes, as you're saying insightfully, the celebration of the aggressive woman. And it's not that. It's about taking your own needs seriously. That's all. We don't need to throw aggression in it, right? Then God forbid you become the angry woman. Oh my God, we'll do anything, right? We'll do anything but to be labeled angry. And anger has a place in this culture, which is it's not okay. So yes, it makes me angry. But for women to get to be angry about something is revolutionary. Right. If if uh, I hate to keep comparing, but if a man is angry about something, it very often can stay about the thing he's angry about. If a woman is angry, she's an angry woman. So it's it's just very different. And these um, threatening labels, even girl boss, there's the assumption, right? Like, oh, I don't want to be a girl boss. That's unattractive. Um they do a lot to keep us in the likability cage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier about needs. So I want to talk a little bit about that and what role do those needs play in leading to emotional exhaustion? Well, from the time we're very, very young, we are in a kind of complicated, I would say, relationship with our own needs. So we learn very early that, um, having needs might be a problem in a lot of families, right? Having needs means you're weak or having needs upsets our caretakers or makes them angry or makes you to blame. That's a big one, right? You're responsible for your needs, right? You should be able to not have them. So early on, we get this kind of confusing message about, is it okay to have needs? Right. And of course, this larger societal message, which is my needs are about taking care of you. When I start adding in my needs, I become selfish. Your needs, your needs, like who gets to have needs? Right. And that they would matter. So we get in a kind of adversarial role with our own needs. And the more that we see our needs as ours to decide we have them or we don't have them and then guilty for having them, right? And this is our failing that we have needs, that we're not needless. We should have no needs. That's what a good woman has, no needs, except what you need. So when that's the case, and again, not a direct message, but picked up from family, picked up from society, picked up from our just larger cultural messaging, we end up exhausted because we have turned our own backs 
on our needs. We have said that our needs are something to be feared and it makes us a bad person and weak and all of these unappealing things to have needs. And who are we? We don't deserve to have needs. So all these complicated messages take us out of relationship and a compassionate relationship with our own needs. Our needs matter too, right? The belief that if our needs matter, then we must not care about other people. Hogwash! Why not us too? And so trying to normalize that you're allowed to have needs, you don't choose them, they arise. This is when we start to feel in touch again with our vitality. If when our needs are the adversary, then we are set up to be depleted. Absolutely. And you talk about the idea of this selflessness. And in your book, you write about it as a badge of honor, which reminds me actually of the story you told about the mother picking off her kids' yes, plates. Yes. Aren't you wonderful? Yes. And there's, you know, there's, there's all these different beliefs about, you know, what makes us, you know, this, this martyr, you know, it still remains, right? The, the woman who needs nothing is somehow idealized. Why? Why? Why is that interesting? And, you know, we, we created, it always makes me laugh because we created this system where, you know, you have to put on your own oxygen mask before you can take care or fill your own bucket before you can fill anyone else's bucket. But you see what we're doing with that is really we're saying, well, your end goal is to take care of the other. But you, you kind of have to take care of yourself so you can. But really, again, what's the focus is so we're available to you. God forbid that we would be the destination right? Why not us? And not just so that makes us more able to be the pack horse for you, right? It's not either or, it's both and. Yeah. And one thing too, um, it feels almost like this needlessness has become a core belief that women carry. Can you talk about some other ones that women, you know, carry from the time they're born? So you just named a big one that we're better. We're better if we have no needs. I mean, it's so crazy when you think about that. We're better people, humans, sort of incarnations of all of it. If we have no needs, weak, we're weak. Big one in family structures that we're weak. Needs mean that you are broken in some way. And the, the one of the ones that I see all the time is this idea that when a need arises, right, that we are, again, somehow responsible for that. Like, what is wrong with you that you need that, that we're choosing that, as opposed to the idea that needs just, needs make themselves known. It's not something you, you decide you need this or you don't, but we blame ourselves. And then we get back into this adversarial relationship, right? What's wrong with you that you're having that need for a minute to yourself? That makes you selfish. That makes you blah, 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 blah. As if you made that happen. Another big one is I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it, right? Why me? I have to earn my needs. 
I should, I should have to give something to be able to receive something or to need anything. So those are some of the big ones. If I open the door to my needs, I'll fall apart. There'll be so much, it's a tsunami the way we imagine our needs, you know, that I won't be able to take care of all the people that I take care of. If I even open the door the tiniest bit, I'll be overwhelmed. I'll be, compl- I'll be a puddle on the floor. If I have needs, all I'm going to find out is that people can't fulfill them. It's a recipe to be disappointed, you know, and if... If I really let my needs in, I'm going to end up alone because no one loves me enough to really care about my needs. These are like deep in the cells, you know, and so we we have this sort of uber-competent woman, you know, step in the uber-competent incarnation of us who needs nothing and protects us from ever having to face any of these deep fears which are built on these faulty core beliefs, right? And we often don't even question the system. We just go about our lives covering up any needs so that none of these terrible things happen that we imagine. Yeah, and just feeling like you can't rely on anybody even, which is a terrible, terrible thing. It's a lonely place. It's such a lonely place. But in so many of us, there is this, deep belief that nobody can fill my needs. I mean, not really. And I cannot tell you how many women I meet who underneath all of it really believe that if they don't do it, if they don't take care of it, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. And it's heartbreaking to see that and to see that there so many of us women are not willing to even find out if that's true. It's so deep that their needs are up to them to, to fill. Did you grow up with an emotionally immature, unavailable, or selfish parent? Join Lindsay C. Gibson, author of the self-help hit Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, for a six-week intensive online course. You'll learn essential skills to reclaim your true self, build emotional resilience, and nurture healthy relationships. Sign up to learn more at newharbinger.com slash Gibson gift and receive a free excerpt bundle from Gibson's books. New Harbinger online courses, expert help for better mental health. I want to move a little into talking about sort of solution. Yeah. And... Self-care is thrown around everywhere. Can you talk about what it is and what it isn't and why it doesn't work? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we have these deep and complicated problems that we've just touched on a tiny bit. But our answer to that is this gigantic, I think it was $14 billion the last time I checked, dollar industry called self-care, which we love, right? I think it was the most Googled term of 2021. And um, essentially, it's let's pamper the heck out of you, and that'll solve these deep-seated problems and open the door to the likability cage. If you, you know, if you get enough mani-pedis, if your shoulders are rubbed enough, and listen, I love mani-pedis, I love massage, but it's 
not just a temporary solution and, and shallow solution to the problem, but in some way it strengthens the very, one of the very big problems to the system, which is we're still chasing something outside ourselves, right? Real self-care is not something you buy or do. It's a way of being. It's a way of being self-caring. It's an action. It's not a one-off. And so no amount of candles or, you know, chia seeds are going to take away the idea that, or take away the experience that we are in a suspicious relationship with our own experience, that our own experience can make, uh, put us in danger, that we still believe that it's more important to be liked than to be real, and that our safety depends on being what you want. So, um, you know, it supports this chasing an external um, answer to what really is an internal uh, quandary and and uh, conditioning. So um, it's not just temporary and superficial. It's also strengthening the idea that there's someone or something out there that can, again, fix us. We're still on the you're broken treadmill. And so until we can make ourselves, and that's what I talk about in the book, you know, until, and I have very clear steps of walking the walk of you matter. Until we really figure out and in our heart, not just our head, but it's an embodied experience that our truth matters until we're our own ride or die, if you will, then we're just chasing more of the same. And and it's the same message that someone else is the destination to fix us. What I'm teaching is making ourselves our own destination, really getting curious and friendly with our own experience, not as something to manage. You know, what we do is we manage our experience so that we can remain likable. We manage everyone else's perception of us to keep us safe constantly, you know, softening, doctoring, sweetening, adjusting our truth to keep ourselves safe. What real self-care is, is about redefining. It's a paradigm shift. It's about redefining this place of the truth, that the truth, standing in our truth, being who we really are, first of all, does not make us uh, my way or the highway person. It does not make us, I don't care what you think of. We do care. And we get to also stand here as real. So re kind of defining and navigating and negotiating um, out of codependence which is I need you to like me to be okay, to we can have two uh, even contradictory experiences and care about each other and be related. So self-caring is about learning to walk in the world in a way where we're not responsible for everyone else's experience of us.
and not to blame for that. So we can know that our truth, when we're speaking our truth and being real, that that's a different kind of safety, but so grounded and strong. And that I'm going to be real about it. We do give up some of, again, the cash and prizes. But we what we get for that is such a different kind of authentic life that's ours. And it may come at the expense of some people who really do just want us to be what works for them. But what we get in return and what is the courage that we need to take that chance? What do we need to know? That's what really is of interest to me. How do we start to make those baby steps towards a life that's more real? Yeah. And, you know, that self-care is so much in our work, but it can be very overwhelming to even figure out where to start tackling. Do you have any tips for where women can begin to start thinking about this? Sure. So I always start every process with awareness. So if we're not conscious of how we are giving ourselves away moment to moment, and, you know, I'm not going to order my dressing on the side because I don't want to be seen as high maintenance. I'm not going to say what I really think because, oh, that'll make them not like themselves as much because, and I need them to like themselves. So I'll, I'll make myself uncomfortable so you can be comfortable. We have to get to know our system, not with judgment, but we've learned this, right? And, and the, and the loving part of it is underneath it. We really believe that in order to take care of ourselves, we have to abandon ourselves until we can't anymore. So first step is just notice what should, how do you roll? Where do you avoid being judged? What do you do to keep the peace? And in the beginning, we're not even just doing anything different. We're just noticing. And then we start to put ourselves, you know, on the map, a hand on a heart that can say, how are you doing in this moment? You, this creature that I left so long ago right? To take care of everyone else. Putting ourselves on the mattering map throughout the day. I'll check in with myself throughout the day and just, just take six seconds, you know, how are you in this moment? Physically, emotionally, mentally? What's it like to be you in this moment? How are you with this other person? How are you in this space? That's something we don't do. Like, what's going on with you, right? And then we start to do these practices like moving our whole paradigm from should to want, right? What if we didn't do everything because of what we should do, because of what it will make us, what our identity will be if we do that, right? And then we'll be liked and then we'll be safe. Right. So what if I started to ask, actually, what do you want? Imagine. And, you know, we believe, of course, oh, my God, if I included what I want, I wouldn't do anything I do. But often that's not really true. And starting to insert little bits of, well, if I'm doing this because I should, what am I serving? What is the deeper underneath the should? What am I, am I trying to 
you know, look like a good daughter-in-law? Am I trying to be a good mom? Am I trying to be an important person? What, what am I serving, right? And then can I start to include my wants a little bit more? A long time ago, we stopped listening to our, what do you call it, still small voice of what we actually want. But we can't be authentic if we don't know what we want. Most women, I don't care how old they are, they come into my office and they are so clear on what everyone in their life wants and needs. No idea what they want. None. So to start to open that question again is revolutionary. What what do I want? Who asks themselves, what do I want? Why does that matter? And then to start to design a life that might include a little bit more of what we actually want. And then we start to move out of this paradigm of because something is not right, it's my fault. Right? That's part of what keeps this system in place. I control everything because I'm responsible for everything. So if you are having a hard day, my assumption is I've done something wrong. We're trained. Now I can fix it and be again, the one who's celebrated as, you know, the fixer and so on. But what if I started to let that go a little bit? What if something could be wrong in my version of reality and it not be my fault? What if I don't know why it's wrong? Imagine. Or what if I started to, in little ways, start to tell the truth. So the barista puts way too much milk in my coffee. And I say, no, I asked for that dark. Right? And they look at me and they say, so you want me to dump the whole coffee out? And I say, if that's what you need to do, yeah. Or if my partner says something that's hurtful, this is more like the PhD level. And I say, hey, that didn't feel good. Instead of, <laughs> right? Again, throwing ourselves under the bus to keep the peace. Start to insert in little baby ways, standing in our own shoes and saying what's actually true, right? And it becomes this not apologizing. I'm so sorry. I know I'm so neurotic. I know, I know I have allergies. I'm a lactose intolerant, blah, blah, whatever we need to say. Or I know I'm oversensitive and that's why it hurt. Or I know you're just doing the right thing. It's my problem. Leaving all of that open space and seeing what's it like to actually just say what's true kindly and respectfully and not take responsibility for how my truth lands on you. Revolutionary to start to live from that place, not manage everyone else's perception of us. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Nancy, when you said the Starbucks thing, my heart was like, I could never do that. Like I literally. (laughs) I know. You know, I'm going to say something, Cassie. At your age, I don't think I could either. And then I realized that being able to stand in that silence, stay grounded. And if that's what it means to get it the way I ordered it, yes, is one of the most electrifying experiences. And I'm, I join you. 
the tiniest thing because that she's going to judge that she comes from the patriarchy too as pain in the ass she's a problem she's neurotic she's blah blah anal she's let it all stand and stay connected with i asked for it dark and stay with what you know to be true your own ride or die, right? To not adjust yourself based on a judgment that's not okay, right? That will change your life. And it takes courage. It really does. Because a system teaches us to say, no, no, I'll just, I'll just have it with all the milk. Yeah, I, I'm okay. Yeah. And then she likes us. And then we ride on the fumes of her liking us and being that likable person until we can't ride on those fumes anymore. Mm -hmm. Because we're the one under the bus drinking the coffee we don't want to drink, never to see that barista again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's really powerful. We talked a little bit about this when we were talking about self-care, but I feel like part of just being a woman in this culture is always trying to better yourself, always trying to improve. How is it possible that we spend so much energy and time doing this and we never actually arrive at the point of liking ourselves genuinely? This is it. And we're both laughing at the moment, (laughs) right? Sort of because it's the big joke, right? That the game is to stay on the treadmill of I'm the one to fix. And what are we really afraid of in saying, I'm whole right here? We we built in this judgment there, which is, oh, so you think you're perfect? Nothing to fix. Made up. When we say we're okay right here, we're not a problem to be fixed. We're not in any way saying that we don't, stay open. Life is going to teach us. We're going to continue evolving, right? That's not up to us. So we we build in these judgment systems that make us feel like we are insanely narcissistic if we allow ourselves to just be. But what are we really afraid of is getting on with the business of our life. If we take ourselves off the, you know, the the slide there as as some sort of uh, disease to be cured, right, then we have our life back. What do you want to do with this life? But we have been so conditioned. If we could fix ourselves, we wouldn't have these needs. If we could fix ourselves, every moment would be as we want it to be. It's not, but that's okay too. It's getting okay with not okay. So it's accepting the whole miracle and catastrophe that we are. And then getting on with the business of that's what is. So this treadmill, this this sort of habit trail of if we could fix ourselves, get enough sound baths, get enough forest bathing, get enough whatever else we're supposed to do, uh, chocolate chocolate wraps, then we would never uh, suffer. 
we would never have conflict, we would never experience suffering, and everyone would like us, and we would have no needs at all. And of course, if we are fixed, then what? Then no one will ever have a problem with us. Conflict is part of it, right? Our truths are different. Yeah, it's a really funny system, right? Keep fixing ourselves, but God forbid we should be okay to ever be present where we are with ourselves and accept ourselves. Absolutely. And I think one thing that feels like a thread of this, this whole conversation is we need to learn to be okay sitting in discomfort. A lot of that is important in speaking your truth. Can you talk about some tips for, for that? Because that feels, for me, that's like the hardest part, the sitting with the discomfort. Well, we, again, learn very early that the goal is comfort, right? But in fact, the majority of life is not that comfortable. And so in these practices where we're saying something that maybe is not what the other wants to hear, right? We try these little ways of practicing, can I survive disappointment, being in the mix, right? We have this very, very deep belief that we're all going to fall apart if we sit in messy or, you know, not all okay. But getting okay with not okay is the essence of well-being, the essence of it, because 98% of life is including the not okay. And the, the very nature of impermanence makes for a not okay state. So questioning our beliefs that in order for us to be okay, everything, all the ducks have to be in a row. Everyone has to be pleased. Everything has to be in unison. That's false. So there is this deeper place, which, and some of it comes back to early programming with family where, you know, when we had a difficulty or when there was conflict that people fell apart or they couldn't hold the space, they couldn't, okay, so we have conflict. How do we be in conflict? As a culture, we are so trained on both genders that conflict is a disaster. Conflict means we all fall apart, but we start to practice inside ourselves and with our loved ones and with other people. How do we stand okay with conflict or with anything? You know, one of the things I say in my workshops is one of the goals is in this workshop is to learn to be disappointing right? The very thing we're most afraid of, I should disappoint you because no one will survive disappointment. Well, I know I survive disappointment on a moment to moment basis and okay, bring it in. So again, another piece of it, Cassie, is we have a very sort of binary way of looking at things that when there's uh, difficulty, there can't also be joy and wonderful things. It's both, right? We think that when there's difficulty, that it completely obliterates everything good. But life is both, including 
This is really the message of the book. The parts of ourselves that we wish were there and the parts of ourselves that we wish weren't there. And it's all, you know, Rumi's guest house, that wonderful poem. Bring it in. Bring it, bring in the jealousy, bring in the anger, bring in the love, bring in the empathy, bring in the not okay, bring in the okay. We, the larger space that holds all of that, can let all of it move through. So giving yourself permission to say, um, I can be okay with not okay. I can survive that barista being angry at me and hold my ground and know my worth and know my right to ask for it the way I, in the language she speaks, said to her, I'd like it dark. I can hold all that and don't have to make it smooth, right? Our reverence for all okay is what ultimately makes us suffer all the time. And and really and truly, Cassie, it comes down to practicing. Oh, I can survive that. I can hold your not okayness with me. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And Nancy, that feels like a good place for us to wrap up. If you have any final thoughts for the listeners, I'd love to hear them. Final thoughts is a lot of this is practice. You know, a lot of this is really unlearning a system, not blaming ourselves for how we got here, but starting to become more aware of if emotional exhaustion resonates for me, okay, how do I experience that? How am I on a moment-to-moment basis reenacting it and living what I've been taught? And then how are some baby steps... Um, that I can start to live in a more authentic, more uh, in alignment, more empowered, more truthful way. It's a practice. And as someone who now stands there and um, can hold the silence and not have to correct the judgment and we're changing the world by not fixing the judgment coming at us and not adjusting ourselves so it doesn't happen and just holding the disconnect there, right? That we are changing the world. It's not about asking for more, for less milk. It's about changing this relationship with being whole and okay and maybe not pleasing all at once. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nancy, for this conversation. And all the messages in your book are so important. And I hope a lot of women get something from it just like I did. So thank you so much. I'm delighted. And I, I'm i going to stand behind you in your, or I'll be in your pocket in the coffee store. <laughs> thank you. If you're like countless other women today, you probably feel overwhelmed, emotionally exhausted, anxious, stressed, frustrated, or unsatisfied, or all of the above. In addition to managing your own career and running a household, you may be taking on an abundance of emotional labor, tending to others' needs at the expense of your own. If you spent your whole life trying to please and manage other people's experiences, it's time to speak your truth out loud, stand in your own shoes, and live an authentic life rather than just behave. 
Written by a therapist and spiritual teacher, Nancy Collier, The Emotionally Exhausted Woman offers the validation, emotional support, and empowering skills you've been craving. You'll discover insights grounded in self-respect and awareness to help you be on your own side and uncover your deepest psychological, spiritual, and emotional needs without feeling guilt, shame, or judgment. You'll learn why you're feeling depleted, why you take care of others at the expense of taking care of yourself, and how to develop a deeper form of self-care beyond the temporary respite of a spa retreat, bubble bath, or manicure. Finally, you'll nurture greater awareness of what you truly need to achieve lasting vitality and fulfillment. As women, we are culturally conditioned to believe that we should be able to do it all and should be all things to all people, all while smiling, looking perfect, and needing nothing for ourselves. At the end of the day, these pressures can leave us feeling depleted in body, mind, and spirit. So how can you start taking care of you in a deeper way? This empowering guide will help you gain a newfound awareness of your own needs and find the courage to live a life that both nourishes and inspires you. Visit our website at www.newharpenter.com and use coupon code podcast 25 to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologist Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. Join the New Harbinger Clinicians Club, a free membership club exclusively for mental health professionals. Sign up today and you'll receive a special welcome gift, 35% off all professional books, free client resources, free eBooks throughout the year, access to private sales, a subscription to our quick tips for therapists, email program, and more. Visit newharbinger.com slash clinicians club for more information. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show, and we hope you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider.